Amen. Uh, I'm going to also read our scripture text for today. It's coming from Ephesians, the second chapter, verses 1 through 10. It's Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. When you got to say, I got it. All right. It reads, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. And at this time, uh, our children's church and crossroads are dismissed. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is James. If, you, uh, if we, we haven't had a chance to meet yet, and I'm one of the uh, elders here at Riverside Community Church, and it's my privilege this morning to, to reflect on this incredible, re remarkable passage from Paul's pen. <clears throat> Last week, Wayne, who just read for us the text, preached uh, on... The, the closing verses of chapter 1 and reflected in some parts of chapter 2 on the power of God that is available to us in Christ, not just in the past, not just in a vague future, but right now. And we spent some time in the service before communion praying for that power, pray, seeking God to bless us as this, this all-powerful God who in Christ the full expression of the fullness of the deity finds uh, bodily presence, not just in the person of Christ, but now through our gift of the Spirit, the fullness of God's power is operating in us. And so we pray for it because the fact is, if you're like me, you often feel powerless. Do you feel powerless this morning? The reality is, of course, we all have power as image bearers, as those created 
as male and female, we were created with tremendous power to influence our world and to influence each other, to represent God's reign on earth as it is in heaven. This is what our design is as humans. And with it comes, with that great responsibility comes great power. And we have that power, though it's been compromised and corrupted. But we often think of ourselves as powerless. I remember one, one night I was walking home from class at the University of Florida. Sorry to bring that up. <laughs> and I was, it was at night, and I was, I, I'm a fast walker, and I was then. I was sort of wanting to get home to my dorm after being in the library. And there was a young woman, a female student ahead of me, and I was walking quite quickly. And she started to pick up her pace. I was just wanting to pass her so I didn't pressure her. She just kept going faster and faster. And, and I thought, what's going on here? Until I realized, oh, I'm six foot three and it's dark. And she's a five foot four, 120 pound at best woman. So I had a certain power in my presence, though I don't think of myself as a powerful presence that was intimidating to her. And likewise, we all have power that we often don't think of, but when we feel powerless, if we don't come to the Lord to seek it, we will seek uh, dangerous ways to grasp for power, manipulative ways. We will go to control or manipulation. I, as a, as a man, have power. I, as a husband, have power, though I sometimes feel powerless in my marriage. As a father or as a parent, I have power, though I often feel powerless with my children. And if I'm not careful, I can control and manipulate out of that sense of powerlessness. Even more dangerous in the case of being a pastor. I often feel powerless as a pastor that I'm not a good enough leader, not a good enough preacher to affect the change and the growth I want to see. And so that sense of powerlessness can lead to an abuse of power. And so we need to properly understand power as good, but also as in our sense of its lack in our lives, where we go with it. And sometimes our sense of powerlessness really has to do with faith. You know, we talked about at the beginning of this letter, when we started the series a few weeks ago, that Paul wrote this letter as a cyclical letter. It wasn't just to a single church, but probably a group of churches in the environs of the city of Ephesus, and it made its rounds. And these churches were not what you and I think of. They weren't meeting in public buildings they had purchased. They were small gatherings in houses. They were tiny and scattered, a sort of ragamuffin group. And they felt very powerless, especially in their culture, where at the very center of their city, the center of their life was the towering temple of Artemis, the seventh, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was looming on the, on the horizon, not just architecturally, but culturally, socially. And there was grabs for power and claims of power in abundance in the city of Ephesus. We know this from the book of Acts, as we mentioned a few weeks ago. When Paul came through and preached the gospel and many converted, there was about $10 million worth of magical papyri burned. 
These magical papyri were scrolls that had incantations, ways to uh, incite the gods and goddesses and the various powers and principalities that filled the heavenly places, a way to manipulate and control them, to gain power. There was a longing for power and expressions of power in the glorious religion of Artemis. And the church just felt so weak and so powerless in comparison. And here Paul is saying to the church, all the power in the universe is overruled by Christ who bends it for your benefit. More than that, this sovereign head has been given to the body so that the fullness of God's power in Christ now flows through the veins of his church. The fullness of divine power is in us. And you know what the Ephesians thought? The same thing you're thinking. Really? Because I don't feel powerful. And so what Paul's doing here in chapter 2 is laying out not just how God's power played out so remarkably in Christ, as we saw a couple weeks ago, raising him from the dead, seating him at the right hand of God himself, placing all authority, all dominion, all power under his feet. But that power has now been given to the church. And it looks like what's spelled out in chapter 2. There are three main verbs in the run-on sentence from verse 1 through verse 7. And you don't get to them until verses 5 and 6. Here's the three main verbs. Here's the big idea of our passage. You have been made alive with him. You have been, same verb, raised with him. You have been, same verb, seated with him. The same immeasurably great power exercised in Christ has been exercised in you. And here's what this means. Whatever powerful display of God you can imagine in your life or you could want for your life, maybe it's the eradication of the cancer in your body. Maybe it's the healing of your marriage. Maybe it's the reconciliation between a child who's long been alienated from you or a broken family relationship. Maybe it's a financial windfall. Maybe it's your dreamed of success in your vocation. Whatever you might imagine to be the most impressive display of divine power in your life, Paul wants the eyes of our hearts to be open to see that the most impressive display of divine power in your life is your salvation. What God has already done in raising you from the dead, what he is doing, and what he will surely finish. So would you pray with me that God would open our eyes, that we would behold the immeasurably great power of God at work toward us who believe. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Paul's wisdom that you gave him to teach us what is the truth of your goodness, your sovereignty, your power, and how it operates for our everlasting benefit. Open our eyes now to behold such immeasurably great power and immeasurably powerful grace in our lives, that we would be amazed, that we would worship, that we would feel your power in us.
We, praise, we pray these things in Jesus' almighty name. Amen. All right. The first thing he begins with is our, our powerless condition, which we really did occupy. The most powerless a man or woman can be is dead. When you're dead, your corpse has zero power. You have zero ability to influence, zero capacity to act. You can only be acted upon. It is literally the complete and utter vacancy of power. You are no longer a subject, but as a corpse, a mere object. Zero power. And Paul says, quite literally in verse 1, and you being dead in your trespasses and sins, you were in a true condition of powerlessness. You may have thought you had power, but you were truly powerless. In what way? Because he goes on to say in verse 3 that we walked, we walked in a certain way as dead people. We were the walking dead. And so we weren't totally powerless. We had power to do evil. We had power for corruption. We had power to be manipulated and to manipulate. But what Paul means by your utter deadness in your trespasses and sins is that you were morally dead, morally powerless. Spiritually, there was no spark there. For any power that really matters, power that would lead to true and lasting blessing, you had none. I had none. And in particular, not only did we lack power, we were under malevolent powers. Paul lists three powers here that we were under. The world, the devil, and the flesh. And so let's take a look at each one of these in turn. First, the world. He says, uh, verse 2, in which you once walked following the course of this world. So we once walked. That's a very Hebraic way of saying lived. You lived according to the course of this age, according to, if you like, the spirit of the age. And there's many ways that we can uh, illustrate this. It's hard for us to be aware of the course of this world because we're in it. It's like the, you've heard the joke of the two fish swimming, swimming along, enjoying the day, and a third fish passes them and says, how's the water today, boys? And the first fish turns to the other fish and says, what's water? Right? We're so immersed in it, we're not even aware of the course of this world. It's so infiltrates the, the very fiber of our being. And it doesn't occur to us that there is a course of this world. There's just a of course that's the way things are. But it's not the case. I'll give you just one example of this to illustrate. We live in a day and age where all of us across the spectrum, from the left to the right, Christians, non-Christians, we have imbibed this sort of philosophy that says the purpose of my life is for my self-realization. I, I exist so that I might be self-realized, fully realized, my potentials, that I myself might fully establish my happiness, my joy, right? the fullness of my potential. We, we just think, of course that's true. But that's a unique thought in the history 
of the human race. This notion of finding and living your authentic self, which is part of that narrative, can be traced back to a German philosopher of the 1930s. It's very peculiar that we must live our authentic lives. That we must express our true selves, discover and express to self-realize. This is all peculiar to the 20th century, 21st century. It's not the case that we weren't selfish before the 20th century, but now it's that we have a philosophical foundation that tells us it's good that you seek yourself. It's good that you express yourself. That is true life. It's the, the good life. Right, so no longer do we live for the sake of our family or to promote the heritage of our culture, but our culture itself teaches us to turn inward and to seek me. And we're like, yeah, of course, right? So that's just one illustration of the ways in which the course of this world has so deeply shaped us, we don't even know any different. We don't even know that that's not the way it is, that that's not true, that that is actually deeply self-destructive, that to seek self-actualization through ourselves leads to self-dissolution, that we believe it. But it's not just that there's sort of this, this group think of our culture that shapes us, these philosophical influences that have entered into the well and we've all drunk deeply of. It's also the case that behind that is a malevolent personality coordinating and acting. He goes on to say, following the prince of the power of the air. And we talked about that briefly a couple weeks ago. The, Paul here in Ephesians speaks frequently of the powers and principalities that are operating in the heavenly places. And in the ancient cosmology, you have the earth, where is the domain of men and women, and then you had the air, or the, he the sort of the first lower heavens, and then the highest heavens, where the throne of God was. In between us and God, as it were, there is a world in the ancient imagination filled with powers and principalities. Many of the pagans at Ephesus believed this. It was filled with gods and goddesses and other powers that they sought to manipulate through magic. They felt powerless and were looking for power. But the reality is behind these things are not just the dumb forces of history. There is a personal presence. Paul, later in chapter 6, will talk about standing against the schemes of the devil. There is someone scheming. You know, all the grand conspiracy theories that we hear today, they're not all totally absurd. There is a conspiracy. There is a God of this age, Paul calls it, at work, conspiring for the destruction of humanity. And we were totally enslaved to that power. And that might be hard to believe. We might think that that's strange, and it is. But as C.S. Lewis said in his introduction to the Screwtape Letters, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest 
in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist and a magician with the same delight. We are not to be overly fascinated with the demonic that operates in the world, but neither are we to be ignorant of the schemes of the devil. We are to be wise, and that means being aware. But we were before simply deceived, unaware, and under power of the devil. But not only that, we have the flesh that operates within us, within our own bodies. Verse 3, this spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience describes what we were. We were sons, meaning, again, a very Jewish way of speaking. We were marked and characterized by disobedience. We, we, were, we were like them following the course of the world and the power in the air, this, this, the power of the God of this age, among whom, verse 3, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. In other words, we, <laughs> we are not innocent in this. Yes, the world is filled with lies, and it's hard to separate lies from the truth. Yes, there is a power at work in history to deceive us. But we also have a desire to believe lies. We want to believe them. Look, Satan's greatest power, really perhaps his only power, now that Christ has removed his accusations, is the lie. He comes with, to Eve in the garden, remember? What does he come to her with? Not as a monster to scare her. He doesn't come with a, a handgun. He comes with a lie. Did God really say? And then, when she gives her answer, he begins to sow doubt. But maybe God isn't really for you. You know what? You're powerless. And God wants to keep you that way. Reach out and grab, take, take it. Take what God won't give you, right? It was the lie. And Eve being deceived took, but Eve was culpable for her deception. Likewise, you and I live under these dark powers that manipulate us and lie to us, but we are culpable because of the desires of our flesh that operate within us, we want to believe the lies, and we do, and we act upon them. You'll notice it's not just the flesh. In the ancient world, like the Greek world, their kind of view of man was you had the lower, baser instincts, the lower desires kind of from the belly down, and then you had the higher desires, the higher instincts, the higher faculties of reason and rationality. And the balanced man or woman allowed their reason and rationality to overrule their baser desires. And really that was the goal, to give your reason, your rationality, dominance, to overrule the desires of the flesh, as they might, as they might identify that. But notice what Paul says. It's not just the desires of the flesh that we carry out, the desires of the body in verse 3, but also the mind. Also the mind. This is what Reformed 
theologians meant when they talk about total depravity, that unlike what was often the popular view, even in the Christian church, that God corrupted our desires, but at least the mind, the rational faculty is preserved and we can use that to rein in the body, following a very Greek idea. The reformers argued, no, even the mind itself, though it still serves good purposes, as do the desires of the body, it too is corrupted. So the desires of the body are not just uh, to be overruled by the mind. They need some, some sort of outside power. The mi our minds will not do it. Our minds, in fact, are an expression of those same fleshly desires. In fact, in a striking passage from Genesis, that's what God uh, said about mankind. He uses the same word Paul uses here in the Greek text. But listen to what he says. The Lord saw the wickedness of man, that it was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That word intention is the same word Paul uses. That even in our mental faculties, our reasoning, it is only evil continually. In fact, in Colossians 1.21, using the same word again, Paul says, you who were once alienated and hostile in mind were doing evil. It wasn't just that our minds were deceived, we were hostile to God. Paul says in Romans 8 that the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God, indeed, it cannot. And this is why Paul goes on to say, we were by nature enemies, or rather by nature children of wrath. Again, children of. We were marked by, characterized by wrath. We were subjects of divine wrath. God's just, host, holy hostility against our own rebellion. This was the most dangerous predicament we were in. Yes, we were deceived by the world's way of thinking. Yes, we were deceived by satanic powers. Yes, we were self-deceived in our own flesh. But the worst predicament in your utter state of powerlessness was this. Omnipotent and holy hostility stood against you. That is our greatest predicament. What could rescue us from that? And I know this is strange because as we'll go on to see in verse 4, he says, but with the great love with which he loved us, how is it that God had wrath toward us when he had predestined us in love to be adopted as his own sons? How can we be the predestined to be adopted sons of God and the children of wrath simultaneously? Well, John Calvin writes in the Institutes, in some ineffable way, in other words, in some way I cannot fully explain. God loved us and yet was angry toward us at the same time until we were reconciled to himself through his son.
This was our greatest danger, that we stood opposed to God, and God in his holiness stood opposed to us. Verse 4, but God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with, with which he loved us. He liberated us from our powerless condition and our enslavement. He liberated us from the power of sin, the power of the world, and the power of the devil. How? Verse five, even when we were dead in our trespasses, in our state of utter powerlessness, we were corpses manipulated by satanic and cosmic powers. Even then, he made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. We were raised above these powers that overruled us. On the screen you'll see a kind of parallel passage from Paul's letter to the Colossians. Colossians 2.9, he says, for in him in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Christ is the fullness of God, and you have been filled in him. That's the point he made here in Ephesians 1, and 23. All the fullness of God is in Christ, and all that fullness is in you. And again, we're thinking, really? If only we had eyes to see it. If only we had eyes to see it. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also, and Paul does the same logic here. How is that power demonstrated? You were circumcised with a circumcision made not without with hands, by the putting off of the body of flesh, not a piece of flesh, but the whole of your flesh was nullified by this work of Christ, the circumcision of Christ, possibly referencing the crucifixion itself. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And that is power indeed. And he goes on, and you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, that was your powerless condition, enslaved, a corpse, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. God, in the riches of his mercy, forgave us all of our trespasses. How? God made alive together with him, same word that he uses here in Ephesians, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. The law marked our sins. The law ticked each, each rebel, at rebellious act, each revolt. The law marked and expressed our rebellion. That's why Paul says in Romans, law brings wrath. Not because the law has a wrath of its own, it brings God's wrath. It establishes our guilt unequivocally and justifies God's judgment. So the law stood opposed to us and the holy wrath of God expressed in the law stood opposed to us. But what did God do? He canceled the record of debt. How? 
with all of its legal demands. These are righteous, just, good, right commands, demands to be made of us that we failed to do. But because of the great love with which he loved us, he set these aside, nailing it to the cross. Nailing it to the cross of Christ. By grace you have been saved. By grace. Not of your own doing, but by his doing alone. All of our guilt, all of our shame, all that we carried, not just subjective guilt, our objective guilt was canceled, nailed to the cross. Christ, who knew no sin, became sin for us, that we, who knew no righteousness, might become the righteousness of God. More than that, I love this, verse 15, he mocks the worldly powers. He disarmed them, the rulers and authorities, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him or in the cross. It can be in him or in it. But what a mockery. How was Satan defeated? By Christ's death. We sang it this morning, he, there hangs the lamb, not in, not in loss, not in defeat, but in victory. He triumphed over the rulers and powers through the cross and made an open shame of them. And so you know what this means, you having been seated with Christ, you sit above the devil and above the world and its course. Now we are still in this world and so we are still manipulated and there's still a need to stand against the schemes. We can still be deceived, but in Christ, we are no longer enslaved. We are above these powers that threaten us and in our fear might lead us to grab for power, which is a lot of what we're doing, I think, as Christians especially in the West. We're fearful, we see a loss of power, maybe a loss of privilege, and we are running for power and control rather than resting on the throne where Christ overrules all. He disarmed them and put them to open shame, and we've been seated, liberated from their tyranny. Our battle with the powers and principalities are now open to victory. Remember what James says, resist the devil and what? He will flee. What a wuss. All you have to do is resist him and he will flee. God not only has liberated us, my friends, he has made us truly powerful. We are truly powerful in him. Verse seven goes on. So that Christ did all this, God did all this work in Christ in us as well, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches. We already saw that the immeasurable greatness of his power, now it's the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ. Last week, Wayne said that I coined the phrase, trophies of his grace. I did not coin that phrase. Uh, that is a very popular sort of reading and, and right and good interpretation of 
I wish I coined that phrase, uh, of Ephesians 2 here, that we are trophies of God's grace and we will put, be put, as it were, in his trophy cabinet to display his glory forever and ever. And here's, wh- and here's why that's so significant. Because when we get to heaven, there will be incredibly impressive displays of divine glory in human beings. As C.S. Lewis said, we will, we, here on earth, we'd be tempted to worship us if we saw us. We will be quite impressive, but you know what, in heaven, we will not be impressed with each other. We will be impressed with God. And and, and because this is why, not just how far you will go from here, but where you came from. This, This dude was dead. She was utterly bankrupt, and now she's a saint, shining like the stars of heaven. Wow. God's power is so immeasurably great. So often in the church, we can spend our time trying to be impressive. Man, I've been guilty of that. But that's just not the point. Despite the narrative that this is about you being self-realized by you, God is going to fully realize your potential in Christ. But it won't be your work. It'll be His. And it will be very impressive what God is gonna, has done in you and what he will do in you. But man, we're all gonna be impressed with the incredible glory of God. We'll see some saints in heaven that dear on earth we may be despised and they're higher up, right? You guys ever see the TV show, The Good Place? Where they get the good house? You're like, man, they got the great house. You know, there will be no jealousy in heaven. We'll just be like so impressed with God's grace in that person's life. Wow, look what God did. Look what God did in their life. That's amazing. And God is showing off. Really, the universe isn't about your self-expression. It's about God's self-expression. God is showing off his incredible glory and grace. And we get to be part of it. We get to be enjoying that goodness and grace. And going, wow. God, this is amazing. And it starts even now. This is why Paul goes, again, seems to interrupt himself in verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. No one will boast in heaven. This is why we sing in the holy, 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 the saints are doing what with their crowns? They're casting them down because they're saying, whatever glory I've received is by your grace and power. You deserve all the praise. I have no boasts, however high up you are on the hierarchy of heaven. There will be no boasting in heaven, only boasting in God's grace. And the same is true in our lives right now. We have a tendency to look down at other saints who we don't see as mature as us or as far as long as us. Insofar as we do that, we have misunderstood the very nature of our own salvation. Do you know what the, the problem is? We're too impressed with us and not nearly impressed enough with God. But we're not that impressive. I'm not very impressive, and neither are you. But the God who's worked in your life, he is impressive. And his power is unlike anything you've ever seen. In fact, are you seeing it now? 
It's not by our doing. It's not by our design. It's not by our execution. When he says this is by faith or this, uh, this is not of your, of your own doing, it is the gift of God, he means the whole enchilada of your salvation. Not just faith, the whole thing. None of this is of your doing. You were dead, remember? You didn't initiate this process. He did. This is his doing. So that there's no boasts in this room. There can be no boasts. There can only be gratitude, deep joy, and humbling ourselves before so powerful a God. Not only that, it's not just that God's power is operating in you for a distant future in the eternity coming, in the age to come. That's true, but that same power that will get you there is operating today and will operate tomorrow. Look what he says in verse 10, kind of beautifully bookending our our passage because he starts off saying, you once walked in the course of the world according to the power of the air, according to the desires of your flesh. But now look what he says, for we are his workmanship. We don't (laughs) self-realize, we're God-realized. We are his workmanship, not just in creation, being made in his image, but he says specifically in Christ, created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That means today. That means when you leave this service, in fact, in this service right now, there are good works for you to do, like praise his name, like express our gratitude, like pray and rejoice over his goodness. There are good works that you'll do as, uh, for you to do on their way home. And when you get home, like husbands, clean your house before your wives get back, <laughs> right? Like there will be lots of good works for you to do, right? <laughs> the kids, that, that's true, that's a win. We can do better than that. You know why? Because you have divine power working in you, Jonathan. <laughs> we can do this. God has set aside in his workmanship in you, he has prepared good works for you to walk in. You used to walk in a path of disillusion and corruption. That is no more your path. There are good works out there in the future, distant and immediate. God is prepared. He's preparing you for glory. He's preparing you for sainthood, do you understand? He is preparing you for moral and spiritual greatness. You, even me. That's how powerful he is. And so, what would it mean to believe that and to walk in that? I love this passage from Titus 2, which sums it up so beautifully. Titus 2, 11 through 14. Paul writing to Titus says, for the grace of God has appeared, which is another way of saying Jesus appeared. I love that. You know, is grace a kind disposition from God or is it a kind of gift of power from God? Yes, but it's more than that. Grace is the fullness and presence and power of Christ himself. You want more grace? You need more Jesus. Get close to him. Come to him. Confess your need for him. Confess your sins. Confess your weakness. Come to him for rest, for comfort. Come to him in prayer. Come to him in the word in which he shows his face to you. Come to him in worship and you will receive grace upon grace. 
for the fullness of grace and truth is in Christ Jesus. The grace of God appeared, bringing salvation for all people. No one is outside of this pale. No one is not allowed to come. No one is not considered. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, for the age to come, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, not just to save us from our past sins. He's not just saving us from hell. He's saving us for righteous activity and everlasting rewards in heaven. You are saved to receive everlasting rewards. You are saved to be put in that trophy case and to be a stunning display of his power. Right? To purify for himself a people for his own possession, his inheritance, who are what? Zealous for good works. Why are they zealous for good works? Because they're goody two-shoes who just like to do good things all the time? No, because they believe that God is powerfully at work in them for glory. And they are zealous for glory. They are zealous to show off the power and goodness of God in their own lives. And so they make risks. They make sacrifices. They do crazy things like decide to change their whole lifestyle and go to the mission field. They do crazy things like give enormous amounts of their money to others to support and care for them. They do crazy things like spend the time it feels like and the world tells them they don't have to, to invest in each other, to care for one another, to pour themselves out for others. This is what people who have their eyes open to the greatness, the immeasurable greatness of God's power do. And this is why you were redeemed. This is your future, your destiny. You've been redeemed to be zealous for good works. This is good news for us who are tired and feel powerless, who feel like, man, I have no energy for good works because it's not of your doing. It's not by your works, it's by his. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we're grateful that your power is at work in us, has been and is and will be. Lord, help us to lean into that power now as we prepare ourselves for the good work of singing your praises, honoring you as we should. Would you be glorified, would you be enjoyed Lord, would you be honored now, we pray.